0: alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I have a really inspiring guest today. Nigel Bennett, at a very young age, was shocked to witness firsthand the real impact of oil spills on our natural world. After almost being shot down by FARC guerrillas on the Venezuela Columbia border and being forced to escape Egypt while working for his father's oil spill contingency planning company, he decided to break away and start AquaGuard spill response. AquaGuard now provides equipment and services that protect water, the planet's most precious resource in 104 countries. His new book, Take That Leap. Risking It All for What Really Matters is a wonderful book. And it's a adventure that he had as an entrepreneur, emerging philanthropist, and always an avid outdoorsman. And I would say an extreme outdoorsman from my perspective. <laughs> Nigel, it's so great to have you on the show. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. You're I really a wild man, that. you are just a <laughs> wild man, you know? Oh my God. <laughs> you know, seems so mild-mannered. And here he's jumping off cliffs, climbing <laughs> mountains, you know, that nobody else would, and skiing backcountry and avoiding Funny. Uh, avalanches. <laughs> it's really great to have you on the show. No, thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. First of all, let's talk about just the writing of the book, here yeah. you are, you're talking about having uh, ADD and mm-hmm. PhD, and and I have to say that it actually worked really well for you, because <laughs> I was completely enthralled with one experience where you're about to get shot down, yes. and the next time you're escaping another country, um, right. <laughs> and your father's in prison, and all of these things going on. Talk yeah. about the calling that that book was about, though, what was really at the heart of writing this book.
1: Yeah, the heart of writing it, well, actually it was my children was, was the one thing, is I, I really wanted to leave <clears throat> some of these stories to them. And I'd, I'd been thinking about it for, for years, and I'd been going to a, um, a class at MIT in Boston, which was an entrepreneur's conclave. And it seemed that every single one of these guys in the conclave, it was 75 of us, um, mostly men and, and about eight or nine women, there were 75, and, um, they were all writing books and they were all told if you're a CEO or you've started a business, you have to write a book. And that was the most daunting thing for me because like you said, I'm ADD mm-hmm. and I'm also dyslexic as well, which didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, yeah, I mean, it's a lo- it's a long, long story, but you know, eventually I got around to, you know, uh, putting some, some of the stories on, on paper and turning it into this into this book, which is, I've just been overwhelmed by the response. And I thank you for your kind words. It's just, uh, you're very generous. So thank you so much. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your
0: early adventures with your father's company and yeah. being a photographer and all the things mm-hmm. you went through in the beginning. And uh, tell us some of these stories that you have in the book, just a little bit. Well, it,
1: it's really interesting. I um, I actually was a speaker at a, a conference um, for influencers this week on on Bowen Island here. I, I'm actually in Vancouver on the on the West Coast, and there's an island called Bowen Island. They they held a conference there called Triplet, which is for adventure travelers, influencers that want to make a difference. Mm. And and they're all 21, 22, 23 years old. And I stood up in front of them and I said, wow, when I was your age, 40 years ago today, August, Mm -hmm. I just left high school. And the next day after high school, I found myself in Venezuela, hanging out of a helicopter, photographing Lake Maracaibo, which is a... It's a lake that's open to the Caribbean on the, on the top. And uh, I was working for my father's environmental sensitivity mapping company and he was mapping um, countries. He did nine countries over 10 years. So this was my first experience outside of Canada and I was flying around the lake in this helicopter hanging out and I was strapped in, I was out on the hanging on the sketch with my, with my lens. And I saw so much environmental degradation. I saw so many, so many oil spills because in Venezuela, <clears throat> um, the oil industry was operated <clears throat> by the British and the Americans for years and years and years. And then they were kicked out in, I think, the 1950s or early 60s by the Venezuelans and they nationalized the oil company, like the, oil, the oil company. And, um, but there was no maintenance. Mm-hmm. So there was pipeline after pipeline after pipeline were breaking on Lake Maracaibo. And I was photographing all of this. And as I came around the bottom of the lake, there was still indigenous tribes living the way they had for thousands of years or millennia, living on sticks on the, on the top of the water on their, little, on their little huts. And they were looking up at us and they were kind of waving and, and uh, you know, living in the natural world. And just above them, 20 miles. It's a, it's a large lake. <clears throat> it was completely contaminated.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then as we flew north towards the Colombian border, um, we got a little bit too close to the Colombian border, and the and the FARC guerrillas that were operating at the time started taking pod shots at our at our helicopter. They were radioing us to get out of the area, and they were taking pod shots off us. So we 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 you know we weaved away very abruptly. <clears throat> and I was I told the I told the audience that this is 40 years ago, that day, which was three days ago. And I said, I was your age or younger. Mm. And their their faces just uh, you know, they just dropped, they couldn't believe it. And <clears throat> so for the next 10 years, I found myself hanging out of helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft, basically saying the same scene in Venezuela, Brazil, Indonesia, Egypt. Malaysia, parts of China. And um, at one point I was, uh, I was in Egypt and I was asked to go do a survey of the Sinai Peninsula. The Sinai Peninsula, it's uh, between Egypt and, and Israel's on the other far side. And um, so I went to this helicopter base in the middle of the desert. It was, it was about oh, 100 kilometers south of Suez on a dirt, dusty track. It was a military, it was, it was just a military checkpoint, really. And I got to the helicopter base and this big American fellow waddled out. His name was Johnny and he, and he, uh, and he, and he worked with a bit of a limp. He'd been injured in Vietnam. And he said to me, he said, I know, I know why you're here and I know what you want to do and I'm going to take you to some areas that I'm, you know, to some areas, but I, I can't take you to certain areas I really want to take you to. And I'm like, that's fine. And he, he looked at me in the eyes and he said, I know what you're doing, but do you really think that you can make a difference? Hmm. And I thought I was, you know, I was probably 22 by this time. This is a couple of years later than after Venezuela. And I said, hell yeah, I, I can make a difference. You know, I was full of vim and vigor and I was young and I was going to change the world. But that resonated with me for the rest of my life. So we, we lifted off. We got, I got into the helicopter. I put on the helmet. And, uh, I had the, um, the microphone and he sat on the other side and then two, um, Egyptian fellows, oil, oil execs jumped in the back of the helicopter. We lifted off and he said, can you hear me? Can you hear me? And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I can hear you. And he said, okay, now we can talk. Yeah. Okay. And so he says, I'm going to take you to, I have to drop these guys off. I, I'm going to take you to some areas that I'm not supposed to take you. And I want to have you take as many photographs as you can, and then and show as many people as you can. I'm said, okay. He says, but one thing, your camera, keep it between your legs. Don't let those guys see it in the back seat because if they see that you're taking photographs, we could both be arrested for spying and thrown in jail. I was, you know, I was shocked. So we dropped these two fellows off and then we continued North up the Sinai. I had my camera between my legs. There was glass on the floor. I looked ahead of me and all I saw was this oil flowing into the Red Sea, flowing like a massive river. And I I asked him, I said, what is that? He said, it's a pipeline. It it ruptured, you know, a month ago and um, they haven't done anything about it. So I had my camera between my legs. and I started taking photo after photo after photo of what I saw. It was the same all the way up the Sinai. Wow. And then we banked. Yeah. Then we banked to the left and we headed back across the Red Sea over into the desert of the, the you know, the mainland of, of Egypt. We flew out into the desert for about 15 minutes. I looked up on the horizon and I thought I, saw, <clears throat> I thought I saw a mirage glistening in the desert. And he said, you know, take a look at that. And I'm like, okay, there's a lake out here. That's interesting. I don't think there's any lakes between here and Lake Victoria you know, in Southern Africa. And um, I looked further and it was a lake of oil. Wow. And it was as as far as I could see. And he said, that is a ruptured pipeline. That pipeline goes from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean. It has a leak and it's been leaking like that for five months and nobody's done anything about it. So I I was just floored by what I was seeing. I saw the same thing in Venezuela. I saw the same thing in Egypt. And I really, really wanted to make a difference. And I was in Egypt on and off for five years. Um, and it's, it's a long, long story. But yes, my father uh, did get thrown in, in jail um, in Egypt. And I basically had to escape out of the country during this, this same trip. And uh, we worked to get him out uh, from London. And it took uh, six months, he was incarcerated for six months. And it was a really, really tough time. Uh, I got back to Vancouver, and my sister was working in our business with us. Um, and we had a tough time with this. We couldn't figure out why our father had been incarcerated, but we knew some things were going on. And all I can say is that our ethics clashed. Yeah. And so my sister and I, I decided to take my sister and another fellow and we left and we, we started our own company, which is called AquaGuard Spill Response. And our, our father was not a happy camper. Um, with this. Uh, we were part of the business and we were helping him, you know, build this, this business school. I business. was flabbergasted when I
0: heard he charged
1: you to leave. I was
0: just more. Yes, yeah. yeah. like, what?
1: Yeah. He, he, yeah, he basically came in to my office the next day and gave me an invoice for what we, what we owed him to actually leave, <laughs> leave the company. And we, uh, we actually did, we paid it off over five years. It was a fairly significant. We had no money. We had, uh, I was, uh, it was in 1989. Uh, I'd just been married to my wife. We'd, we'd, uh, she had a little bit of money, so we scrolled together enough for a little house, which we had, which we were paying massive interest rates back then of 16%, huh? as you know. <laughs> right? And um, yeah, we were doing what we could to survive, but I, I had seen so much and I had a lot of clients around the world that needed help. They needed help. Um, there was no equipment, um, that could recover this stuff or contain it. Um, so I, I broke off and formed AquaGuard spill response, which basically designs and manufactures oil spill response equipment to contain and recover oil spills. And, you know, since that time, you know, we've been involved in pretty much every major oil spill on the planet. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's a little bit of a snippet, um yeah so starting a new company here you yeah. are you know yeah. you're
0: you're mm-hmm. also out there doing extreme skiing and mm-hmm. other rock climbing and all these other things <laughs> your sister and the three of you start this company with virtually no money nothing mm-hmm. what was it that made it work what what was it that kept you you couldn't work in the states you yes out in in japan and, mm-hmm. and all these other countries but the biggest uh, uh, polluter was the United States. In many of these mm. mm. U.S. firms, how did you how did you make it?
1: Yeah, for the first few years, it was really really tough. You know, we had we had our little house and we had everything rented out. We had every room in the house rented out to foreign students. We had our little driveway rented out to a fellow with a car, and then somebody had a boat and we'd rented <laughs> rented our driveway <laughs> to a guy with a boat <laughs> for twenty bucks or whatever, anything to get by. And, um, at that time, uh, NAFTA, the North American free trade agreement did not exist. I don't think that came into like 1992. So we were a Canadian company. Um, the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened in Alaska in 1989. And we did a bit of consulting work on that, but we didn't sell any equipment. And, um, it was really tough for a Canadian company to do business in the United States back then, believe it or not. It was, it was, it was really hard, but the one good thing people, people say that, Things happen for a reason. And I believe that if the North American Free Trade Agreement was in existence at that point, we would have probably done most of our business in the U.S. So we would have been limited to the U.S. But fortunately, <clears throat> I had I'd been traveling. I was in nine or 10 different countries over 10 years. I knew so many people overseas and they needed help. So my clients were outside. Mm-hmm. So I leveraged that. And so, next thing you know, we were doing business in uh, all of these countries from, you know, well, not necessarily Egypt, <laughs> but uh, Indonesia and uh, Malaysia and Japan, and you know, all through South America. And yeah, so I really I, I leveraged you know that because I was so fortunate to have um, experience out 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 there. Um, and and but our but our lives were. It was chaos. I mean, we had a young family, like most people with young families, it's chaos all of the time. And then I had a business as well. Um, So my life felt like I was on a a continuous roller coaster. And I I, I call it, I actually call it something in my book. I call, I call this um, the doorknob effect. And, And I'm sure most of your listeners feel this a lot of the time. As you get to your office or wherever it is, and you stand outside because take a deep breath, you touch the doorknob. And just before you turn it, you take a deep breath because you know, inside it's chaos. <laughs> you know, chaos is going on. You're going to step into a bee's nest and it's going to be chaos. So I call it the doorknob effect. I would, you know, sit there every morning and I would get there and I would like take a deep breath, turn the doorknob and step into the, the world of my, you know, my business, which was going, you know, gangbusters, but it was completely out of control.
0: <clears throat> yeah. So. A couple a couple things. First of all, how did you keep up with the big guys? Because you're right. three people inventing equipment to get out there. Yeah. Uh, and the other is, as you grew, the common issue then is uh, you get successful, but you don't have the capital to continue to grow. And that's, that's exactly. all business, a very tough place. Exactly. How do you deal with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, constantly you're <clears throat> you're pouring everything that you make back into your business because you're trying to survive and you're trying to expand and, and get into new markets around the world. Um, it was it was really it was really tough for for well, I would say for 20 years I would I would um, <clears throat> I would stand in the <clears throat> excuse me, sorry about that. <clears throat> I would stand in the shower every morning. And I, you know, I would, I would wonder, you know, how many people I would have to lay off or could I hire anybody? Or were we going to make payroll? And it was like that for 20 years constantly. Um, it was, uh, it was tough. And I, I mean, the very first time when I broke off of my father's company, we didn't have anything. <laughs> we didn't have any technology. Mm-hmm. And so my business partner, he called me into the back room one day and he had a Tupperware bucket. And he had it half full of water, and then he had some oil on the surface. And he had this little brush, and he had it on a, basically a stick or a crank. And he said, hey, come here, I have something to show you. And I'm like, okay, fine, what is that? And he started cranking the crank, and the brush would go through the surface of the water, and the bristles of the brush would stick to the oil, lift them out of the water, and leave the water behind. And I thought, I thought, wow, you really have something here. You know, if we could only scrape the oil off, We could have, you know, possibly a little oil skimming system, Mm -hmm. and and so about a week or so later, he called me back in, and he had a little scraper system, and he had this platform set up, and he was cranking it again with an electric motor this time, and he said, "Um, "You know, you know, what do you think about this?" I'm like, "I think, I think this is great." It was flat aluminum; it was all welded up. It looked horrible. I said, "If you could paint that thing red." I can, I'll put a sticker on it. It says Aquaguard. I'll take it to a trade show in Seattle. So I took it to a trade show in Seattle, and I was trying to get the attention of the prime contractor, the big guys mm-hmm. that cleaned up the Exxon Valdez oil spill. This was in 1992 or 1993, I think, or probably yeah, 93. And it was really hard to get them over to see our little, you know, little model. And finally, I was able to drag one of the guys over, and he looked at it, and he and he said. That's really cool. I think we can sell those. And then he got his boss to come over. And um, he looked at it, went, hmm, and he walked away. So I thought, okay, we're done. Driving back up to Vancouver from Seattle is a three hour drive. As we're driving up, our big brick cell phone <laughs> rang. Yeah, right. I had one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, huh, oh. you know, what's this? It's this Larry guy from this company called uh, Foss out of Seattle. And uh, he's like, Nigel, you know, I I think you guys have something here. There's a a tender out for uh, in Alaska to re-equip all of the oil skimmers for the Alaska pipeline. I think we should put in a bid. I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, fine. So we got back to Vancouver and we put something together with them. Long story short is, you know, uh, about three weeks later, I got a call from Larry and says, we got the contract for all of the skimming systems along the Alyoska pipeline. And we'd never built any of these things in full, full scale. <laughs> <laughs> so they still have them today. It's what, uh, 2019, they still have these systems. Along there. We supply them spare parts. So it was, you know, lots of leaps of faith, um, lots of, you know, putting it out there and, and risking things. And, you know, the, you know, our key too was, um, you know, having these working with the big guys, and uh, having them as our representatives in various countries and, and we've just we expanded like that and my, my business partner was the we both went to the British Columbia Institute of Technology and we took mechanical engineering I was more of the sales type of fellow where um, my business partner was the mad scientist we kept him locked up in the back room and he would just design things <laughs> so I gotta ca- ask you though <clears throat> Nigel. yeah one in
0: 10,000 people would put up with the everyday, the doorknob effect as you're right. walking into that chaos, yeah seeing everything fall apart. Pretty much, I mean, entrepreneurs, this is why they're entrepreneurs, they, they deal with complete chaos day to day. It looks like yes. no way, there's no hope. I'm wondering... What brought you to center? You went into nature, you skied, you did a lot of things like that. I don't know if you were meditating then or not. But what is it that allows you to keep going and have a company be successful like this when 10,000 people fall by the roadside?
1: Yeah. Well, one thing is that we had no choice at that time. It was was survival. (laughs) That's an easy answer. But another thing is my sister and I, my sister was heavily into the outdoors. She was a mountaineer. Her boyfriend was a mountain guide. And so before, you know, we, when we worked for my father, she used to drag me up the mountains. She got me into rock climbing and backcountry skiing and all this stuff. Surprised what? she didn't get you killed. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a few stories we have there. <laughs> I know. I read the book. <laughs> she, she calls me, she still calls me this day, uh, to this day the expendable brother. She would always send me out first attached to a rope, mind you, but out first to do a recon. Um, but what I, what I found is that we got into this rhythm. When we got into our little company, we got into a rhythm of k- keeping this going. And we found that in the bee's nest, when everything is chaos, mm-hmm. you have to be able to step away and see things from 30,000 feet. Mm-hmm. And you can do this many, many different ways, but removing ourselves from the company and going on an adventure, that was our way of doing it. Mm-hmm. So over time, my wife and I would leave and my sister would run the business while I was gone for a couple of weeks. We, my wife and I would take off to Nepal and we'd go on a, a trekking adventure around Nepal. Or, but, so then when I came back, I'd be completely fresh, regenerated and have new ideas. Because you can only think when you're out of that, out of the, out of the, out of the box or out of the, the bee's nest. Get into the stillness. You have to get into the stillness. And, and for me, I, my stillness uh, was created for many, many years and a little bit of adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, people get it from, you know, yeah, uh, extended meditation retreats or whatever. But you need to get, for me, get into the stillness. And mine was, it could have been a big backcountry ski trip. It could have been um, traveling with my wife into the Himalayas or whatnot. And, and I know not everybody has, has, is able to do that but just getting away and creating the stillness. So then I would come back and then my sister would go, okay, is everything cool on Everything's cool. And she would go. Mm-hmm. So we would yo-yo back and forth um, for years and years and years. And, um, but one of the, one of the key things for me also was that I felt so alone as an entrepreneur. Um, I had my sister there, she was there for four years. And then she had um, Unfortunately, we, we knew, um, we were in the climbing community and we, we unfortunately had nine of our friends all uh, die within, you know, a few years, all in avalanches and all in different incidents. So that's, that's a high amount of incidents. So it affected her, it was was extreme effect on her. So she um, left the company, got divorced and she moved away and she actually bought a ranch and she still raises horses and cattle to this day. So I was very, very alone. Um, I had my business partner, but we, you know, we, we thought, you know, differently, Sue was a real uh, great connection for me, my sister. And so um, I was really fortunate that I had another friend of mine that played professional football. He was a 300pound plus lineman in the Canadian Football League, and he had retired from football, and he joined a group called the Young Entrepreneurs Organization, because we were all under 40 at the time. it was young entrepreneurs. So he grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, literally, and he says, you have to come with me to one of these meetings. And I just didn't want to go. I said, no, 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 it's, I, I, can't, I don't have the time. Um, I, you know, I've got my family. I, I I can't join anything like this. And he literally grabbed me and forced me to go. That was probably one of the best decisions I ever made was joining a peer group yeah. of, of sort. Right. So it, it could be any type of peer group, but this for me was for entrepreneurs. And from that, that evolved into a group called uh, The Gathering of Titans, funny name there, um, at MIT in Boston. And so I then started going every year for five days, locked down in a a camp, off off campus, off MIT, with 75 entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was my go-to place, and I realized that we're not freaks, and there's a lot of us in a similar situation. And so that just evolved into so many amazing things. And there's another story, you know, I'll I'll tell you in a minute. I had a massive shift in my life when I was ready to quit this group because I'd been in for probably 10, I've been in 10, 15 years now in this group. We go every year. Mm -hmm. I, I just went this past April, but I was ready to quit. And, um, because I'd learned everything about business that I thought. And I I really wanted more, uh, you know, life balance, life rhythm. Um, You know, spirituality was starting to come into my life there. And uh, Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So, and did you have a
0: coach too during that time? Yeah,
1: I had a coach. I would had a coach um, when I joined the group in Boston. I'd hired a coach probably two months before this. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to Boston and this fellow stood up in front of us. He was the facilitator. His name is Vern Harnish and he coaches and mentors thousands of CEOs all over the world. Very, very well-known fellow. Vern stood up in front of the class and he said, how many of you guys, I got a question, how many of you guys out there have a coach? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I got, so I like, you know, I kind of put my hand, I was kind of thought everybody in the room had a coach. These guys were geniuses. They were all entrepreneurs. They were all stuck my hand up. And, he, and then I heard these words come out of his mouth. Only three of you. Wow. Only three of you out of 75 have a coach and he says, let me tell you that every successful entrepreneur, every successful person has multiple coaches. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what? He says, yes, you know, from Steve jobs to Michael Dell to, you know, Bill Gates, all these guys have multiple coaches. They, you cannot do life alone. And I was, I was taken back. So yes, I, I actually, I had a coach and I've had a coach for 15 plus years. Holds me accountable for everything that I do.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of coaches, as you know. I mean- Yes, I know. And mainly because you can't change your mind with your mind. and Your mind is your story, your ego. And so exactly. uh, the only way to get at a blind spot is where someone can hold up a mirror and yeah. actually reveal it. I mean, meditation, it's very slow, but mm-hmm. it allows you to- digest those incomplete patterns from the past but
1: it's a long process whereas a good coach can oh absolutely five minutes you you you, um i found you get into a rhythm you know first it's you know you're you're trying to you have this called this asteroid belt you have all these asteroids floating around you trying to knock off each thing in your life and you know move it out of the way so you can move through it but then as you you get into a rhythm and things starting start happening faster and faster and, and 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 in a better way. And that's basically what happened um, with me. He helped me. Having a coach. Um, mm-hmm. you basically write what you want, what do you want in your life? Mm-hmm. And he holds you accountable to what you, you said you wanted. And if you're going off on this direction, it's, you know, they, they pull you back on and go, hang on a second. This is on your list. This is your number one thing. Mm-hmm. What happened? And, and, you get into this rhythm and this flow and things. And then because I had a coach, I was able to set, you know, eventually my business up to run, run without me. And I was able to take a year and travel with my family. There's a lot of people yeah. looking for
0: what's my purpose, you know, mm-hmm. and the important question. And I know you ran across, uh, I forgot his name, but what's your why? And I think yeah, that's,
1: Simon that's- Sinek, Simon important. Sinek. Yeah, yeah Simon I- Sinek. So Simon Sinek uh, came into our class. He wrote a book um, about your why. He was in my class in Boston. He was a speaker and he stood up in front of me and he said, you know, what's your why? I'm like, why? Like, what? he says, well, why you, why you do anything is why you do everything or why you do. Yeah. And, um, I really didn't know what he was talking about. And he says, everybody needs to have a why, a personal why and a, and a professional why. Okay. So I. My, my company, first I started with my company and my company was called AquaGuard, Aquaguard for response. I was flying home from Boston on the plane and scribbling on a piece of paper and I'm like, why, like, why, why, why? What's the why of my company? Geez, I don't, doesn't really, I don't know. And then I thought AquaGuard, AquaGuard. Oh, I, and then I came up with it. I said, AquaGuard, AquaGuard means to protect water. The purpose, the why of AquaGuard is to protect the world's most precious resource, which is water. Mm. And I'm like, wow. And I came back to the boardroom. I got everybody, everybody thinks I'm crazy when I come back from these sessions. (laughs) I have all these new ideas. And I sat down and I said, guys, what's our why? Why does AquaGuard do what it does? And and one of the guys said, well, we we make the best oil spill response equipment in the world. And I said, yes, we do. I, I agree with you, but why? blank places i said because we're protecting the world's most precious resource which is water Mm -hmm. and all the light bulbs and everybody's everything went off and our why and our purpose for our company was much bigger than what we had envisioned right and then personal wise exact was exactly the same thing i um i don't know i'll I'll go and i had a so that was simon Sinek, which was an it's an he has an amazing chat and he does podcasts and has has some books. It's great. Um, and then, um, I was there, I'd been approached by a UK company, a very large competitor in the UK to sell the business.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you about this. This is... <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> really you. Important yeah. Part. Well, just the fact that here you are, you actually sold your business. Right. Uh, and then, <laughs> and your partner wanted that to happen. Yeah. And uh, for stupid amounts of money, that yeah. you could have been just floating on the water that
1: you were cleaning and not really doing much for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. So I was approached by a very large uh, company out of Britain. To sell the business. I thought they wanted a strategic alliance. So I flew to New York halfway and we met. And they actually wanted to purchase our business. And I said, no, 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 we're not, we're not for sale. And, you know. And so I went back to Vancouver and then they came out of several other times and they made us a an offer we couldn't refuse, my business partner and I. And uh we they done all our due the due diligence and everything was done. They gave us a deposit. And yeah, I it was it was a done deal. And then, but I wasn't feeling write about the whole thing mm-hmm. so time came around and it was april again it was time for my class in boston so i flew out to boston and a couple of speakers came in and there's this one speaker a brother david who's a benedictine monk that you, I'm he's sure been you, on our show he's unbelievable brother he, he yeah. talks about gratefulness and he spoke about gratefulness and i was i was in awe of this man he was absolutely incredible and you know, after we had, we had dinner, I went up to him and I, and, I, and I hugged him and I just started bawling my eyes out. I just started bawling. He just released something in me that had never been tapped into. Because yeah. I was so grateful of what my family and everything so far in my life. He's a man who spent more than half of his life in silence. That's right. That's right. <laughs> An amazing story. I actually talk about uh, him in my book. And then another, then a lady that was sitting beside me the whole time because our speakers come and they sit in the classroom with us for five days and and we don't know who they are and they get up and speak. So this lady, this very elegant lady, she was in her, probably her early, early sixties at the time was asked to come up and speak. And she, she touched my shoulder. She passed and they introduced her as Lynn twist, the author of the soul of money And uh, she Lynn Lynn is is an amazing woman. She ran the Hugger Project globally for years and years and years, worked with Mother Teresa in India, and uh, then also formed uh, a group called the Pachamama Alliance out of San Francisco, which works with the indigenous tribes of the Amazon, mostly the Ashuar of Ecuador to help um, protect their way of life and keep the oil industry and development back. And she started talking. And she was talking about, and she wrote a book called The Soul of Money. A fantastic book, by the way, which you've read, I'm sure, five times. <laughs> <laughs> at least. I've known Lynn for 40-some years. She's been on my show many yeah. times. Yeah. Yeah, she was just at our house the other, you know. Actually, you were here, too, at our yeah. house. You in Vancouver, and we did a chat. She did a little chat. And um, she, she she told, she shared her story. She shared um, how money should be used. It's like water. It flows in and it flows out. It flows in and it flows out and it should be used for good. And I was like, wow, that's extremely powerful. I've never heard that because I was raised in basic—you know pretty much conservative family. It was go, 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 make as much money as you can and hoard as much money as you can. And she invited uh, our class to go deep into the Amazon with her on a journey and uh, spend time with the Ashwar people. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. And um, so I put up my hand as a volunteer to go. And uh, next thing I know, um, my family, well, I actually told Lynn, I said, I can, I'll come. But I said, I have one, one ask. And she said, what's that? I said, that I bring my family. And she says, well, no, it's really, it's, it's for CEOs. It's, a, it's kind of a fundraiser type thing. I said, yeah, but Lynn, you know, I, I'm 50 years old probably at that time. And I said, I've got this much bandwidth left in my life to make it have influence. My kids and their kids and all their friends have this much. They're the influencers. They're the ones of the future that need to see these things. And they'll come and they'll tell two friends, etc. Good enrollment. <laughs> and she said, and she said, you're right. Bring them. <laughs> and so, so the next thing you know, my whole, there's five of us. Uh, we have uh, two boys and a girl and my wife and I, and we are all crammed into a Cessna and we were asked if we wanted to split up into two different Cessna aircraft. And uh, we said, no, if we go down, you know, we go down together. I don't know if that was very intelligent, but that's what we did. I think that was your <laughs> wife that said that. Yeah, that's right. Eureko. <laughs> <laughs> <All right, go>. Eureko. <laughs> and we, um, so we weighed all of our bags and everything and we put them, put them in the Cessna. And we flew uh, with an Ashwar pilot deep into the Amazon, landed on a dirt runway, which was, um mm-hmm. Uh, lined with fla- beautiful uh flowers as markers for landing and then we were picked up in canoes and then we we went um and stayed at a, a little spot called the Kapawi lodge little eco lodge and um then we were there for about a week or so and we met with the Ashwar. we had uh you know discussions with them about you know what was happening in their world in the oil industry and what had happened in northern ecuador uh, with chevron back in the day um uh, Chevron and Texaco. Actually, it was Texaco and then Chevron right, right now, with the massive uh, lawsuit right now um, with all the contamination of the the Amazon. And they did not want that to happen in their area. And so we were invited one evening to do a, uh, a ceremony, uh, an ayahuasca ceremony. We had to fast for uh, 24 hours beforehand. And then we took some canoes. And then we did a three-hour hike through the uh, silent meditation through the jungle. <clears throat> and my kids came to our daughter. Our daughter went in a canoe around to a village. and, and we, we ended up in this village, a uh, small little village, just palapas. And uh, we were going to do an ayahuasca ceremony. So we had a couple of shaman come at about six o'clock in the evening just before, just as it was getting dark. And we had had some ayahuasca, the serum Mm-hmm. just made out of vine, out of a vine. I had no idea what we were doing. I didn't know what ayahuasca was at the time. So my experience was, is that I was laying on a banana leaf at probably eight o'clock at night. And then I started vomiting profusely. And, uh, and then Danielle, our guide, put his hand on my shoulder and he said, are you with the plant? And I, and, I, and I looked at him like, yeah, I think so. I guess I'm with the plant. <laughs> so he took me and he sat me down was hard to walk. I sat down on a log and I was looking at a shaman. And a shaman had a, um, a big fan and he, had a, he was whistling and he was blowing a bit of smoke. And he was going like this. And I was staring at him, trying to focus. And I saw this face and it wasn't his face. It was almost like a face of a Buddha. It was a very happy, warm face. And it was drawing me in. And I felt great. I felt amazing. I was looking at this Buddha's face and I was like, wow, this is, I've never, this is amazing. I feel incredible. And then the face changed and it gave me this look of great responsibility, this very strong feeling of great responsibility. And I was like, oh, I was, I was, I was scared. it, It just, it shook me to my core. And then it turned back to the face of that beautiful, warm, loving, caring smile. And then it backed away and dissipated. And then Danielle took me and he laid me back down on my banana leaf. And then I went off on this 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 other journey for several hours. And when I came to um you know we met Lynn and the whole group the next the next morning and we eventually went um, left the Amazon, which was a pivotal moment in my family's life. My two boys mm-hmm. had the ayahuasca as well and my wife Rako. And our daughter didn't. She was only 10 years old at the time. And it was profound. But on the flight back to Vancouver, I was sitting there looking at, you know, my notepad again and making some scribbles. And I was like, ah, it just doesn't feel right. Selling the business, it just doesn't feel right. The, The look that I had of that great responsibility, I honestly believe that it was something was tapping down into my deep conscience and it was pulling out my consciousness. I said, I can't do it. I can't, I can't sell the business. I can't do it. So I ended up flying back to Vancouver, flying to London and meeting with the fellows and saying, guys, I'm really sorry. Um, the deals off the table were not for sale. So I came back to Vancouver after that. And I sat down with my business partner and I said, the deal's off, deal's off the table. And he had this blank, Terry says, no, the deal was done. Like, no, 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 it gets done. I said, no, it's, it's off. It's not good. I said, but do you, do you still want to sell your share? And he said, yeah, yeah, I do, I do. So I put a deal together with a younger guy that had really been running the company for us to buy his share out. What I, what I did is I said, we, you know, we need to use this platform that we've built over 30 years to do good in the world. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it's coming from, but that's what we have to do. So that was 2012. It's now 2019. So for the past seven years, that's what, uh, you know, I've been doing, we've been doing my family, we've been doing is, is, is I just felt that if I give up my platform, I'm going to hand it to somebody. I'm going to, like you said, I'm going to go sell t-shirts on the beach or just float on a air mattress. Um, you know, what am I, what am I going to do? What's my purpose, my life purpose. And in the, in that journey, that I had, um, we also went high into the, into the Andes after for a short period. There was another shaman there and he looked at me and he, and he looked at me and he said, your life's purpose is to protect Pachamama. And I was, I was like, okay, it's coming at me from all angles here. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah, that's basically what we've been doing. Um, as my wife and I, we've been heavily involved in all these different uh, nonprofits and charities and, and started our own nonprofits. You
0: came back so that you could actually give more. The whole thing has been funding your ability taking yes. these off with your family and yeah. being a voice for Pachamama really and mm-hmm. for water, you know, you're yes, that's right. you a water guardian and yes. you've got a charity that's given away a, well over a million dollars so far. All the sales of your book, 100% of the sales of your yeah. book go to these charities plus your company provides that talk about that shift from I'm building this company to make money and to survive and grow to I'm, I'm keeping this company. So I'll have a platform to be of service to the world and empower people to love the earth.
1: And more. well, I've come to realize that as an entrepreneur, you know, we have a great responsibility, like I saw. We have a great responsibility to, to humanity, to the planet, to give back and to help. I think, I think businesses, um, it's actually very encouraging. A lot of businesses these days have what's called a triple bottom line, right? You know, it's a, you know, component to, to protect or to help. And uh, so things are moving. So moving a triple now. bottom
0: line is, is profits, people,
1: and planet. Yes, exactly. Profits, people, and yeah. planet. Yeah, triple, triple bottom line. Um, and there's been uh, you know, books uh, uh, written on that. Uh, Paul Herman uh, wrote a book called The Hip Investor, which um, encourages people to really look at your investments. If you have investments, what are you invested in? If you're invested in a fund, what are they doing? Is it oil industry pipelines or is it in a sustainable technology? And to to slowly um, make that shift, and and that's that's what I've been doing is I've been you know I looked at my portfolio, I was like, oh my god, I'm involved in all this dirty dirty tech I didn't even know about. Yeah. So I've been shifting it into you know sustainable, um, you know, uh, products and organic. Food. Hard to
0: unravel because some of these companies have companies you, that have companies that exact, have companies that It are really are is. <laughs>
1: it, it really is. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a it's it is a tough. It, it's very very tough.
0: One of the things I wanted to talk about is the prison experience that you just went through because that mm. be a real eye-opener. You just did that uh, up in the high desert. Talk, talk a little bit about your experience of these people who have been, most of them, incarcerated for a good part of their life.
1: So again, out of my class in Boston, um, there was an amazing woman again. The women these days are, are extremely, it, it's amazing. i just loving these women making change in the world. So there's this lady, her name's Kat Hoke, and she runs a program called Hustle 2.0. And it works inside maximum security prisons all over the United States to help rehabilitate these incarcerated uh, men and and women to be able uh, to have some entrepreneurship skills when they get out. And so we volunteered to go inside the prison for several days. And take part in this. And I, I have to admit that my wife and I and our family together have been uh, working with a lot of charities, actually um, giving of ourselves. I mean, we, we do, you know, we write the, write the checks and everything. That's great. But giving yourselves, I really feel there's, um, it, it's just so much more, it's so, it's so much more powerful, especially giving as a family. Um, so my wife and I went inside and I probably had some of the most deepest conversations with human with a human being, and they were the inmates. They were the incarcerated men and hearing their stories and how it could be any of us in there. Most of them were gang members and born into gangs. Many of them are, or several of them were born in prison because mm. their mothers were incarcerated and they were born. So from the get-go, they don't they didn't have a chance. And um they 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 um they had nothing to lose so they would tell us basically everything and um everything that's happened to them and uh they really the, the ones in this this program they were 90 in one day and they were 60 in the other day they honestly wanted to make a change and uh break the cycle mm. um they wanted to break the cycle and uh they wanted to learn about entrepreneurship we did a dragons den style shark tank dragon's den style pitch so they had to pitch us their ideas and we had to seriously critique them and um we uh had to review their lifeline they presented their lifeline to us you know how their life had evolved to where it is and why they were in and most of these people were in you know a lot of them were in for life um, and had been in for 12 13 14 years and some of the guys had been in solitary in the shoe for six or eight years wow wow solitary yeah. Amazing. So it was a very humbling um, experience, and you know, my wife and I, because <clears throat> again, because I was so fortunate to be able to set up the business to run pretty much without me, we've been able to be involved into a, in, in a lot of these things that we we really feel uh, that matter, you know, that matter. So the sure. most
0: important thing that I want to talk about is family. You've mm-hmm. taken your kids and taught them how to care about the planet and be citizens. Right now, I would not want to be a young person now because most of them, there's no future to live into. Right, right. And the suicide rates are now surpassing the military suicide rates, which were phenomenal what do you have to say to to parents and to young people that Mm -hmm. are out there and they say, well, why would I even want to go to school because there's no future?
1: Right. Right. Well, I, I, you know, our our mandate was from day one is that we wanted to raise our kids as global citizens. Mm -hmm. So we spent every penny that we had. Um, and we, we just kept it on a, on a fine, uh, string. Um, uh, to travel, to see the world, to understand other cultures, and meet other people in all these different lands, and and um, it's been an amazing experience. But what I'm really encouraged by, especially when I was at this conference this week, I was at this conference this week with all young people. Probably they're they're all in their early twenties, and people talk about social media as being a bad thing, and, and it, it can be in certain ways, but they're so connected. And these global issues of the environment and politics, you know, all, all this, they're, they're able to connect and share some amazing things. So I, I actually have a lot of um, hope for the future. And, you know, uh, and that's all because of the youth. The, the youth, I, you know, we volunteer. I have a, um, we, we did this, we we're able to take this trip around the world. And we were in Indonesia. And I got so, um, we're all surfers, and we got so fed up with the, the oceans being filled with garbage and plastic that you couldn't even catch away because your skegs were caught. We created a, um, a movement called True Beach, T-R-U-B-E-A-C-H. And we have an app where people report uh, pollution conditions um, of the oceans and, um, and uh, report you know, what's going on in the world. Yeah. But we also do volunteer work with some of these beach cleanup groups. Um, called surf rider and ocean legacy, et cetera. They're all over the world and they're all run by young women volunteers. And I've spent a lot of time. I have more coffees with, I call them kids they are in their twenties kids pitching their amazing ideas these days than anything. And I get more joy out of hanging out with my kids and their kids friends. And then all these kids coming with these great ideas to like, I have huge inspiration i 'm just so grateful
0: to you, Nigel, and to Reiko and to your whole family for the difference that you 're making in the world. you know it 's just amazing and I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with Bucky Fuller mm. early on many years ago, and his 50 year project was to see what what difference one person could make and right 50 year project. You know, if we all took on that, you know, instead of just the big thing, but what difference can I make with the life I've been given? Exactly. Such a great example of that. And you and Reiko and your kids are doing amazing things. It's just hmm. so inspiring. Thank you, and I'm so grateful to you, uh, Nigel Bennett, for being on the show with us and hope we can do another one sometime soon. I,
1: I just, I just, thank you, Mike. I just want to say one quick, quick, quick thing is um, since I've, I've, been able to make this transformation or it happened. It just happened that our world has completely changed. And if you believe in the power of attraction, um, I've been attracted to people, you know, that have come into my life because of this with Lynn twist brother, David yourself. And it's, it's, it's this energy ball that just keeps growing and it's completely different from the space that I was in before yeah. I was stuck. I was stagnant. And now things are going in hyper speed. And I'm connecting with people that are making so much change in the world, and it just inspires me to jump out of bed every morning, and Mm -hmm. just you know, and I I just feel like I'm doing this tiny little bit. And sometimes I wonder, you know, am I really making a difference? And I and I get depressed. I'm like, you know, I'm trying as hard as I can. It doesn't make a difference. And then, you know, I had another you know experience in the in the rainforest in Guatemala with cutter ants. I was sitting against a tree, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. I'm really not able to make a difference. And then I saw the cutter ants and I saw them all in a stream, all carrying their little piece of, you know, their, their leaf to the nest. And I thought, you know what we can, and we do. And it's like people like you and it's people like Lynn and it's people like brother David and it's people like all the ocean legacy people. We're all, we all may not know each other, but collectively we make a huge difference in the world.
0: Yeah. 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 Thank you, my friend. It's a joy <laughs> to have you on, Nigel Bennett. Thanks, the book is take that leap. So <laughs> I invite you all to take that leap, and uh, we will have you again sometime on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.